The sermon today is on Genesis chapter 13, the whole chapter. And we will read also from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. I would encourage you, after we read from 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, to keep that open for just a bit, because the introduction to the sermon will actually focus in upon that text before returning back to Genesis 13. Uh, Hear now the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let us turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at verses 1 through 10. Here the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this to them. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's referring here to his physical body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He is here referring to his resurrection body and the eternal home the Lord would prepare for us. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage, Paul says. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of the word this morning, and may He help us do the hard work of application as well. I do love this passage that we have just read from Paul the Apostle, the one in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-10. I love it because it is both honest concerning the sorrows of life, but it is also hopeful and courageous. Paul here refers to his earthly body as a tent, and he admits that while in this tent, while in our earthly bodies, we groan, and we, in a sense, long to put on our heavenly dwelling. When he says heavenly dwelling, he refers to the body we will receive at the resurrection. Our resurrection body is our heavenly tent or dwelling. And again, Paul says, for while we are still in this tent, that is our earthly body, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. If if you know anything about the life of Paul, you understand why he said the words, we groan. Uh, Paul had a very hard life. At at least we know that his life was very difficult after he came to confess that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, His life prior to that, we don't know much about, but I think things went pretty well for him prior to that confession of faith. But afterwards, he suffered. He knew what it was to suffer. And this suffering caused him to groan. He admits it. And this suffering also increased his appetite for the life to come. Paul longed to put on his heavenly dwelling, he says in this text. His longing was not to be unclothed, that is, simply released from his earthly body, but to be further clothed, that is, to be clothed with his spiritual resurrection body, which is ours in Christ Jesus, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. And anyone who is a Christian, who has known suffering in this life, and all will know it at some point, can identify with the words of Paul. I'm sure of it. But notice that he was not without hope. That's what I love about this passage. He's honest about the difficulties of life. He tells us that he groans. But twice he says, we are of good courage. He says it once in verse 6. And then again in verse 8 we read, yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. The word translated as courage means to have confidence and firmness of purpose in the face of danger or testing. It means to be courageous. It means to be bold. It carries with it the idea of standing firm and unmoved in the face of danger and difficulty. And so Paul was saying, even in the midst of all of this suffering, which does indeed cause us to groan, we are not moved. We are not shaken. Our hope, our joy, our peace and Uh, satisfaction have not been taken from us. In fact, despite all the difficulties of this life, we are of good courage, Paul says. And so my question is this, how can this be? How can a person live with such courage in the face of difficulty? I believe that Paul actually provides that the answer to that question in this very passage. And in verse 10, he says something very important. It begins with the word for, 
4, he's explaining why he has courage in the face of all of this difficulty. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. This is Paul's explanation. This is Paul's explanation as to how he can be of good courage while suffering in this world, while truly groaning and longing for the life to come. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. The Apostle Paul often used walking as a metaphor for the Christian life. Uh, Take, for example, these series of statements found in his letter to the church in Ephesus. If we just confine our focus to the, the, the book of Ephesians, we see that Paul often used walking as a metaphor for the Christian life. For we are his workmanship, Paul says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should Walk in them. Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul is writing from prison, urge you, church of Ephesus, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 4.17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Ephesians 5.2 Here Paul commands us, saying, And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then in Ephesians 5.8, He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then lastly, in Ephesians 5.15, we read, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul loved to use the metaphor of walking as an illustration for the Christian life. The Apostle John also loved to use the same metaphor of walking. In 1 John 1, 6, we read, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then lastly, 2 John 6 says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Uh, Do you understand, therefore, that the Christian life is, is like a walk? It is a journey, and the Christian is to walk in a particular way. Not only is walking a very common metaphor for the Christian life, it is also a very appropriate metaphor. For the Christian life shares many things in common with walking, doesn't it? Walking is active. It is something you must choose to do. And so it is with the Christian life. We must choose to follow Christ. We are to love and obey Him daily. Walking is also a very common activity. Most people find themselves walking throughout the day. Most everything we do involves walking to one degree or another. And so it is with the Christian life. Our faith in Christ and our devotion to Him ought to permeate all that we do. There should be a consistency to our walk, to our Christian life. Uh, Walking is also a methodical activity. It involves simply taking one step after another. And so, too, the Christian life. The Christian life is usually very mundane. And it is right that it is mundane. Have you ever noticed this, that uh, there is kind of this push within the Christian culture to live an extreme life for Jesus, you know? To sacrifice all, to do something bold, to do something radical. 
I would want to say to you as your pastor, live a mundane life for Jesus. Live a very common life, a a very simple life, obeying Christ in the, the, the little things. Every word that you speak, the thoughts that you think, the common activities of life should be to the glory of God. And if God calls you and moves you to do something that we might consider extreme and and radical, so be it. But we have no business doing anything radical for Jesus if we cannot obey Him in the day-to-day methodical aspects of the Christian life. The Christian life is usually mundane. It involves living moment by moment, day by day, week by week, in obedience to Christ. The mature and faithful Christian is not the one who decides to sprint with religious fervor from time to time but the one who walks in faithful obedience to God day by day. Walking is also an enduring activity. Unlike sprinting, walking can usually be done for a long period of time. And so to the Christian life, the Christian is to endure to the end. It is no wonder then that walking is such an often used metaphor for the Christian life and the passages of the pages of Holy Scripture. But but remember, Paul was able to live with such courage in the face of difficulty Not because he walked, but more specifically because he walked by faith. He walked by faith. Paul's faith was no generic faith. His faith was not like the faith that many have today. Uh, People say this, just believe in something. Uh, Faith, but faith in nothing particular is very common today. But have you noticed that this kind of faith though it is popular today, is not the kind of faith that the Scriptures are urging us to. Uh, We are to have faith, particularly in Christ. We are to have faith in God. We are to have faith in His promises and in His words. Um, What God has revealed, that we are to believe. And that is why this passage we have read from, from 2 Corinthians 5, has the words, we know, peppered throughout it. I will not walk you through this passage methodically right now, but go and look at it for yourself sometime. Paul repeatedly says the words, we know. Paul walked by faith, meaning that he believed what God had said, and he lived his life accordingly. He walked, that is, he lived his life day by day in light of what God had said. Paul received God's promises as revealed in his word. He received his revelation as revealed in his word. He knew his law and believed that it was true. And he lived his life moment by moment, day by day, thought by thought, word by word, according to what God had said. This is what it means to walk by faith. It means to walk trusting always in God and in the Christ whom he has sent and believing in what he has said. And remember, not only did Paul walk by faith, he also determined to walk not by sight. What does this mean? It means that Paul's attitude was this, when I take a step, when I make a choice, when I think a thought or say a word, I will do so being informed, not by what I see with my natural eyes, but by what I know to be true from God's word. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. It means walking, living that Christian life day by day, being moved and informed by faith, what God has said in His Word, and by trust in Him, and not by what we see with our natural eyes. This was Paul's attitude. This is why he said that he could endure all of this suffering. He could indeed groan, but still be of good courage. 
Because he was living his life in this way, believing not what he saw with his natural eyes, but what he knew to be true, as revealed by God in the pages of Holy Scripture. He walked by faith and not by sight. Our natural eyes will often betray us. We will go down the wrong path if we choose to live according to what we see with our natural eyes. A bit of a side note, Mike, I have a request, brother, that we sing that song, that new song that we sang this morning again next week. I I love that song. Um, I came across it a few weeks ago, and Mike and I talked about it. It's a beautiful song, but did you notice what it is encouraging us to do? It's encouraging us to walk by faith and not by sight, to know that sometimes what we see are dark and ominous clouds, but what are we to believe that in due time, those ominous and dark clouds are going to pour out upon us God's rich blessings. In other words, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who have been called according to His purposes. Do you believe that? Are you going to walk according to faith, to what God, according to what God's Word said, or, or, or just according to what you see? What we see are the dark, dark, ominous clouds that threaten us. But God's Word says if you are in Christ... Even those dark and ominous clouds, those difficult moments in life, have behind them and embedded within them God's blessing. Sometimes what we see is God's frowning providence, right? But behind that, there is His smiling face. Uh, And we are to live according to this belief. This is why Paul, despite his tremendous suffering, was able to honestly say, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, here is his conclusion. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim. Here is all that matters. We make it our aim, this is our objective, to please Him. Whether life brings happy times or difficult times, our aim is to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So far, this has probably felt more like a sermon on 2 Corinthians 5 than an introduction to Genesis 13, which is what this actually is. But there is a connection. For Genesis 13 has an awful lot to do with walking by faith. That is what that passage, I think, is all about. That, that is what that passage illustrates. Remember that in Genesis 12, 1 through 9, God called Abram to walk away from his country and his kindred and his father's house to the land that God would show him. Do you remember that? And also, God gave Abram his word. He promised to make him into a great nation, to bless him and to make his name great so that he would be a blessing. God said, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That passage there, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and also 1 through 9, is, is critical. It is such a critical passage informing us of the, the narrative of the rest of Scripture. It sets a foundation, but also it sets a foundation for our understanding of the rest of the book of Genesis. This is God's promise to Abram. This is his call. And the rest of that passage through through to the end of verse 9 describes how Abram did in fact walk by faith and not by sight at first. He left his hometown. He journeyed up to the north and stayed there for a time. And after his father uh, had passed, he finally journeyed down into 
the land of Canaan, into that land that the Lord was calling him to, to go into. It was, a, it was a faith walk. It was a walk by faith and not by sight for sure. Nothing that he saw with his natural eyes would compel him to go. But Abram obeyed and he went out not knowing where he was going. Hebrews 11.8 says so. In Genesis 12.10-20 we learn that Abram, though he was a man of faith, he was not perfect in faith. In fact, it seems that having been threatened by a severe famine and being driven by fear of the Egyptians, Abram began to walk by sight and not by faith for a time. Remember that episode there where Abram went and began to lie about how his wife was in fact related to him. He was walking by sight and not by faith for a time, but God was faithful to preserve him and to bless him nonetheless. And here in Genesis 13, we find another story which is instructive to the life of faith. Here we observe three things. One, Abram was restored. Two, Lot, his nephew, takes center stage here. But we find that he, at this moment, was driven by lust. And three, we see that God was still faithful to keep his promises. First of all, let us recognize that after Abram's stumbling in Egypt, God did restore him. This is what we see in verses 1 through 9. In verse 1 we read, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev, that is, into the southern part of Canaan. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, up to the central part of the land of Canaan, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord Abram went down into Egypt where he struggled in the faith. He was driven by fear. He sought to take control of the situation. And he acted for a time, not in simple obedience to God, but according to human cunning and wisdom. But God clearly was faithful to preserve him and to bring him back up into the land that he had promised to him at the beginning. Notice that when Abram came back into the land, he was more wealthy than when he left. The text says that, Abram was now very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now hear me, brothers and sisters. Material wealth is not always a sign of God's blessing and grace. Please understand that. Sometimes those who are blessed of God, those who are recipients of God's grace in Christ Jesus, are materially rich. And sometimes they are materially poor. And it must also be admitted that sometimes those who are cursed of God are materially rich and sometimes they are materially poor. We see that in the world all the time. We see that in the pages of Holy Scripture. Christ Jesus Himself was poor. So we know this for sure. But in this narrative, the material wealth of Abram is clearly a sign of God's blessing upon him. Abram received grace from God. God's favor towards him was clearly unmerited. He didn't deserve it. He stumbled in Egypt, didn't he? He showed a lack of faith there in that place. But though he was faithless when he went down into Egypt, God was faithful to keep his promises and to bless him richly. In verse 3, we read, And he journeyed on from the Negev, that is, again, the southern part of Canaan, and as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, and so this screams restoration, doesn't it? 
Doesn't this scream restoration? Abram came back from Egypt and went right back to the heart of Canaan, right there in the center of the land where he had pitched his tent at the beginning. So there he is, back at the starting point. And in verse 4, we are reminded that not only did Abram pitch his tent there, he also built an altar to the Lord. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, just as he had done at the beginning. So this is very significant. Abram worshipped God at the altar. He did this just as those who had gone before him had done. You remember that episode of Cain and Abel, I hope. They worshipped the Lord at the altar. One of them did so appropriately, the other inappropriately, right? And so too, the descendants of Adam, those who were of his righteous line, worshipped at the altar. And here we find this repeated theme. Abram is found worshipping at the altar. And the observation of this fact cannot be overstated. It is so very significant that Abram worshipped at the altar. There he called upon the name of the Lord. There he took the name of Yahweh to himself. There he worshipped the Lord and called upon him for wisdom and for strength. Friends, understand this, that when the Lord calls us to himself, he calls us out of the world so that we might worship him, so that we might glorify his name. This is the only appropriate response to God's call. If we are, no, if we are to, to know Him, if we know Him, we, we must worship and serve Him. For He is our God and He is our Lord. And when we respond to the call of God, we must know that it will involve worship, not only of the personal and private sort, but, but public worship. This is what the Lord calls us to. I think there has been a major emphasis within the broader Christian community over the past 20 years or so, maybe more, uh, there's been a real emphasis on the importance of private worship. And I'm glad for that. Is it important that we worship the Lord privately? That we read the scriptures, that we pray, and in fact, that we just simply obey God in the whole of life, that we live always for His glory? It's a wonderful truth. It is important. But here is one thing that we cannot minimize, that is the significance of public worship, of corporate worship. We see this illustrated in the pages of Holy Scripture that when God called a person to Himself, that person was to identify with the broader community of faith and was to give glory to God in public. And that is what Abram did. He journeyed down into Canaan. He's surrounded by pagans who are worshiping false gods and he builds an altar there. This altar was not hidden away somewhere where no one could see it. It was in plain sight. And he began to call upon the name of Yahweh. So this is instructive for us. We too are to do the same. We're to gather each Lord's Day and we are to engage in public worship with the people of God. Abram's life was centered around the altar. But in verse 5 we learn of a problem. Uh, and notice that the problem is very different from the one that drove Abram down into Egypt. But it is also meant to be compared with it. Remember that Abram was driven down into Egypt by a great famine. Do you remember that from the passage last week? Now he has another problem. The land is not able to support his great wealth. And I use the word great here to describe both problems because that is what the Hebrew text does. The same word appears in 1210, where it is translated in the ESV at least as severe, the famine was severe. And it also appears in 13.3 where it is translated rich, at least in the ESV. 
Abram was very rich in livestock. In fact, it is the same Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word simply means great, weighty, or heavy. And so Abram was at first tested by a great famine, and now he is being tested because of his great wealth. His great wealth is causing a problem for him. Both situations, though they couldn't differ more, are to be viewed as a test. Abram is being tested here in both episodes. In verses 5 through 7, we read, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, you don't have to be a shepherd um, to understand the problem here. Uh, There's only so much land. There are only, only so many resources And both Abram and Lot were so wealthy at this point that they could not dwell in the same land together. Abram's response to this problem is what is to be noted, though. Notice Abram here. He's talking like a a man who has been restored, a man who is again walking by faith and not by sight. Abram turned to Lot and said to him, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we are relatives, we are brothers, um, metaphorically speaking. Abram was certainly more powerful than Lot, and yet he did not use his power against him, rather he sought peace. Christ himself said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that's what we see Abram doing here. He's trying to be a peacemaker. He could have dealt harshly with Lot, but instead he says, let their be no strife between you and me. And so Abram is an example to us in this instance. We too should be eager to pursue peace whenever possible. And in verse 9, Abram spoke to his nephew Lot saying, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. This is, this is a very different Abram from the Abram who when going down into Egypt, took matters into his own hands. Do you remember that? And he began to act according to human cunning as he attempted to manipulate and control the situation by his own strength. The previous episode was all about that. But here Abram is found again walking by faith. He knows the promises of God. He is not afraid, therefore, to humbly and self-sacrificially give Lot first pick of the land. He simply trusted that the Lord would keep His promises. The land would belong to His descendants. This He was sure of. How this would come about, He did not know. But here again, He is found to be walking by faith and not by sight. And He says to Lot, You choose. My concern is to be at peace with you. Look at the land and you choose. Select which portion of it you would prefer. Secondly, let us see that Lot's faith was in this moment being tested And Lot, instead of walking by faith in the promises of God, seems to have been driven by a lust for prosperity. While Abram is found walking by faith and not by sight, it appears that Lot began to walk by sight and not by faith. Notice what the text says. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt 
in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, that is off to the east, and he journeyed there, off to the east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled amongst the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so when Abram gave Lot the first pick of the land, we are told that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. Now there is nothing inherently wrong with the lifting up of your eyes to look at something. I think you would agree with me on that. But the whole narrative here suggests that Lot made his choice not in light of the promises of God, not being driven by the promises of God, or out of a concern to remain closely allied with the blessed man, Abram. But he made his choice based upon worldly appearances. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. It looked like the garden of the Lord, we hear, that is the Garden of Eden. And it reminded Lot a lot of Egypt. It reminded him of that place. No doubt Lot remembered the severe famine that had threatened them not long before. And I'm sure he reasoned to himself, we have made such tremendous gains. I will go now to a land that is more like Egypt. A land with a stable water supply that is less vulnerable to the drought that threatened us in the past. Notice that Lot journeyed to the east, we are told. The language is to remind us of the language of Adam and Eve's expulsion from the land of Eden. They were driven out to the east. They were to live east of Eden. And I think the promise of God was that those associated with him... uh, Excuse me, let me back up. Then we read these words, Thus they separated from each other. So he goes to the east, and thus they separated from each other. Is that not obvious that they separated from each other? Why does the text emphasize this, though? Uh, This, like the language before about his journey to the east, is ominous language. Abram was blessed of God, wasn't he? And God specifically said that those associated with him would be blessed along with him. But Lot was content to separate himself from Abram. Abram settled in Canaan, right smack in the middle of the land that was promised him. But Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Lot traveled to the east, to the very fringes of the land of Canaan. And he eventually sojourned to the south as far as Sodom. He separated from Abram. And the separation, I think, is very significant. In verse 13, we find another ominous statement. Now the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. What was it then that attracted Lot to that land? We're not told. But it appears as if he was looking out upon the land lustfully, being moved not by faith but by sight. He was drawn to the prosperity of that place. He was perhaps drawn to the pleasures and the comfort of that place. And so there he went. Again, I will say that there was nothing particularly evil about Lot moving away from Abram for the sake of their livestock and for the sake of their peace. But the story about Lot is concerning. It gives the impression that Lot was walking not by faith but by sight, that he was being driven by his lust, that there was something about the land and the people to the east that appealed to his senses. And so he decided to journey much further away from Abram than was necessary. Had Lot believed the promises of God that Abram was blessed by God and that he would be a blessing to all who were allied with him and that 
to Abram the land would be given, I doubt he would have gotten, gone so far away from his kinsmen. The narrative of Genesis will eventually prove that Lot's choices were poor choices. In chapter 14, the very next chapter, we will learn that Abram would have to come to Lot's rescue after he is taken captive by conquering kings. And then in chapter 19, we see that God himself would have to rescue Lot before destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness. So I think it is clear that in this passage, Abram has been restored in his faithful walk. No longer is he walking by sight, but again, by faith. But here we see that Lot, the nephew of Abram, stumbles. He seems to be driven by a lust for worldly things. He seems to have a worldly perspective. He begins to walk by sight and not by faith. Lastly, notice that in the midst of all of this, God remains faithful to His promises. In verse 14, we read, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there, again, he built an altar to the Lord. Consider just a few things about this portion of the text. One, whereas in the last section we were told that Lot lifted up his own eyes to see that the Jordan Valley was well watered, etc. Here, it is the Lord who said to Abram, lift up your eyes and look. Do you notice that in the text? In other words, both men did the same thing. They physically lifted up their eyes to look, but Lot looked of his own initiative and with natural eyes only. Abram, by the grace of God, looked with eyes of faith. Two, notice that God again restated his promises to Abram, but in greater detail than before. This is now the second time that the promises originally made to Abram in 12, 1 through 3 have been repeated. The promise is still the same, but God is here more specific. He tells Abram to look northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring. He also specifies that this land will be theirs forever. Abram had already been told that he would become a great nation, but here the Lord said, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. That's a lot of people, isn't it? So that if one could count the dust of the earth, so will your offspring be. This is quite a promise. It's the same promise as the one that was made originally, but there is more detail given here. God is more specific. I think it is worth pausing for just a moment to ask this question. Has God been faithful to, to fulfill these promises made to Abram some 4,000 years ago? Has God been faithful to fulfill these promises made to Abram some 4,000 years ago? And the answer is, certainly he has been faithful. Certainly he has. Abram did become a great nation, that is, the nation of Israel. His descendants eventually did take possession of this land, the land that Abram stood and, and looked about. 
And he saw to the north and south, east and west, God gave his descendants that land. And in fact, it would be Joshua who would lead the people of Israel into that land after the death of Moses, who would say these words, Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Listen carefully to Joshua's perspective on this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it. And they settled there. This is after the conquest, of course, after the exodus, after Moses had passed away. They settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Who are the fathers? Well, it is Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. So even by the days of Joshua, we see that these promises concerning the possession of the land had come to pass, even in the early days after the conquest. But what about the promises concerning the land being Abram's forever and his descendants being as the dust of the earth? Well, concerning the promise regarding the dust of the earth, I, I want you to consider King Solomon's prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 1 where Solomon says, O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, uh, now be fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people, that is Israel, as numerous as the dust of the earth. Do you hear it? What do you think that Solomon was thinking of when he prayed those words, except these promises made originally to Abram? He says, It has happened. Your people are as numerous as the dust of the earth, even now in the days of Solomon. Evidently, Solomon saw that these promises... Um, had been fulfilled in his day. But both of these promises are fulfilled most fully when we consider that the true children of Abram are those who have the faith of Abraham and that they will inherit not only Canaan, but the new heavens and the new earth. And understood in this way, that is the promise concerning the land being theirs forever and the offspring being as numerous as the, the dust of the earth, understood in this way, which is the way that the New Testament speaks concerning the fulfillment of these promises. Truly, Abram's descendants are as numerous as the dust of the earth, far more than they were in the days of Solomon. Not only did the Jewish people continue to multiply and to go on living, but also since then the Gentiles have been grafted in and added to their number, and truly the land is theirs forever and ever, not just a small piece of land there, Canaan, but in fact the heavens and the earth are theirs in Christ Jesus. It's the book of Revelation where we see the ultimate fulfillment to these promises, brothers and sisters. In Revelation 7, 9, John wrote, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And what does that multitude consist of? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is Revelation 7, 9. What, what did John see except the, the ultimate and supreme fulfillment to that promise made to Abram so long ago? That there's a multitude consisting of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they cannot be numbered. And then in Revelation 21, 1 through 3, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Excuse me.
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. I am saying that this is the ultimate fulfillment to that land promise. When God said to Abram, This land will be yours forever, he meant Canaan, his descendants, would possess that. Indeed, it was fulfilled even in the days of Joshua. But it is, it is Abram's forever and ever in that the new heavens and new earth are his. All who have the faith of Abram will be brought into it safely and will dwell there forever and ever with God as their God. They will be his people. He will be their God. The third thing to notice about this portion of the text concerning God's faithfulness is that after Abram walked the land, Abram again settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And what did he do again, brothers and sisters? Notice, he built an altar to the Lord there. This entire episode, therefore, begins and ends with Abram doing what? Engaging in public worship and calling upon the name of Yahweh there in that place. Again, brothers and sisters, if God has called us to Himself, it is so that we might glorify His name. The sermon has been a bit long, I know. And so I'd like to turn very quickly our attention to application. And I want to simply ask you to reflect upon what was said at the beginning of this sermon in that prolonged introduction uh, that was centered upon 2 Corinthians 5. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I walking by faith or am I walking by sight? If you are quick and careless in this reflection, I doubt you'll come away with much at all. But if you take the time to pause and to really prayerfully consider it, am I walking by faith or by sight? If you allow the Spirit of God to press that question to you, I think you will come away with some profound insights. Are you walking by faith or by sight? Are you walking according to God's Word, His promises, His revelation? supremely through the person of Jesus Christ, but contained for us in the pages of Holy Scripture? Are you, are you being moved along in everything that you think, say, and do by that, from the perspective that we find there? Or are you living according to a worldly perspective, based upon what you see with your natural eyes? First of all, does your walk even look like a walk? I'll ask you that question. Does your walk even look like a walk? Are you active? constant, methodical, and enduring in your pursuit of Christ in this world? Do you look like a sojourner? Do you look like a sojourner? Or does your walk look more like periodic sprints, or worse yet, sleepy slumber? Are you walking as a Christian in this world, as the Scriptures call us to? Secondly, are you walking by faith? Are you trusting daily in God and in the Christ He has sent? Are you living in light of His Word? Are you trusting in His promises, keeping His law, and according to the truth of Holy Scripture? Or thirdly, I ask you, are you walking by sight? Have you grown enamored with this world and the things of this world? Like Lot, have you began to make decisions, being driven by the appearance of things, rather than in simple faith and obedience? to the commands of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I am sure of it. If we are walking by faith and not by sight, then we will find ourselves living a life of worship. We, like Abram, will be found constantly at the altar. We will also be able to say what Paul himself has said, that we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, though we groan in this tent And though it be true, we would rather be away from the body at home with the Lord. 
Whatever we do, though, we make it our aim to please Him. Let us bow together for prayer. Father, help us on this Lord's Day as we go away from this place eventually uh, into our private homes and our private lives. Help us to reflect upon Your Word which has been preached. And show us, Lord, where it is that we are walking by sight and not by faith so that we might amend our ways. Lord, it is so easy to grow enamored with this world. It is so easy to be motivated by the things that we see, but we are asking that you would help us to see things from your eternal perspective as you have revealed it in your word. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might faithfully follow you in this world to your glory, honor, and praise. And all of God's people say, Amen.